Well, I trust you've heard the song. I fought the law and the law. law. That's right. Well done. You know that well. Whether it's the Bobby Fuller 4 or the cover by The Clash or maybe even the movie The Cable Guy, we know that line. I fought the law and the law won. And I won't ask for a show of hands because we've already confessed our sin. But perhaps a few of us have been behind the wheel when the law won. Maybe it was in those few minutes between 1.27 p.m. and 1.34 p.m. when the 405 is not a complete parking lot and you tried to make up for lost time, right? Then that strange black and white car behind you started flashing their red and blue lights and you tried to explain you tried to fight the law, but the law won. That's right. As we open the scriptures to the Gospel of Mark this morning, we see Jesus go up against the law. Not quite those red and blue lights, but the law nonetheless. In the three stories that we'll engage this morning, there is a scandal, there is a challenge, and then there is a response. Our scandal might be driving too fast on the 405, when that's possible. The challenge that we're asked for, then, is our, our license and registration. And the answer we often utter is, but officer. The question before us this morning, though, as we look at these three stories in the Gospel of Mark, the question before us this morning is, when Jesus goes up against the law, who wins? Mark tells us, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, which does not seem like a big deal to our modern 21st century ears, but it was. Fasting was the cultural question and conflict of the first century. You see, uh, the Hebrew scriptures called God's people to fast on one day a year. That's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But over time, that expanded from that one day a year to include many other days, like when anyone was repenting for something they should not have done. They would fast. Got pulled over by those red and blue lights. You would repent, and you would fast in contrition. Or perhaps the rains had not fallen yet, and you needed them to fall. Well, then that was an opportunity to fast. Or perhaps you wanted to earn God's favor or his blessing, well, then you would fast. By the first century, the Pharisees were fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. I don't know what they snacked on for Monday night football, <laughs> but maybe it was one of those days when some people came and asked Jesus, how is it, next slide please, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? There's the scandal. His disciples aren't fasting. And there's the challenge. Why not? And here's the answer. Jesus asks, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as he has him, they have him with them. Notice, Jesus' response does not engage morality, right or wrong, good or bad, Jesus' response engages eschatologically, which is one of those big $5 theological words, but it's really important that we know it, right? 
Because there's morality, that's what they're thinking, and then there's eschatology, which means the salvation history of God. Jesus says, you're thinking in one category and I'm thinking in another. I'm telling you that a new thing is happening, that a new season has become begun. And this metaphor that he uses about guests of the bridegroom fasting during the wedding, this is a rich metaphor. You see, in the first century, a wedding celebration would continue for an entire week, which means fathers of daughters, it could have been worse. <laughs> You only had to cater one dinner and pay that terrible DJ for four hours, right? Anybody can spin YMCA. Why do we have to pay him so much? <laughs> I mean, it's true. Let's be honest. Jesus says, imagine refusing to join in the week-long celebration of the bride and the groom for an entire week. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine how insulting that would be to that family to show up at the wedding and to refuse to eat, to refuse to drink, to refuse to dance, right? <laughs> and then Jesus gives two more metaphors just to make his point. Now, Jesus wants everyone to hear him. So what he does is he includes a metaphor that primarily, hear me, hear what I say and not what I don't. He gives one metaphor that speaks primarily to the traditional roles of women first, and then another metaphor that speaks to primarily the traditional roles of men. Okay? He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Traditionally, what women would do. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, and what will happen? It will make the tear worse. And then he gives another metaphor, primarily to the men. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. And all you fans of Two Buck Chuck said, oh my, how terrible that would be. Now, this is true. Quick, quick side note. Um, two of my great-grandfathers um, specialized in, shall we say, um, making special drinks, even when that was, um, shall we say, um, illegal, right? <laughs> Are you following me? Um, the statute of limitations has since passed, and they have ascended to glory, so I can finally tell you the story, right? Um, one day, the sheriff stopped by my great-grandpa Bronson's home, and he said to him, and I'm not making this up, he said, Hey, Bronson, I understand you have uh, exceeded or excelled in the art of making vinegar. <laughs> and my great-grandpa Bronson said, Oh, hi, sheriff. Yes, right, vinegar. So the sheriff wanted to try a glass of the vinegar. And they sat and toasted a glass of vinegar. And the sheriff quite liked the vinegar. And he left with two bottles of his own and nuns the word from then on. <laughs> sheriff likes the vinegar. Get to keep making the vinegar. Everybody's happy. My other great-grandfather, Ellis, made beer during the same time. See, I come from some pretty questionable characters. I'm <laughs> glad I haven't told this story before. He never had to fight the law, but you know, um, yeast ferments the sugars. Yeast is this natural sort of part of the atmosphere, and we only understood how it worked until about 150 years ago. Uh, yeast ferments the sugars that create then ethanol and CO2. Um, and so every once in a while, again, true story. I know preachers can't always be trusted, but these are true stories. Every once in a while, if you were in my grandfather Ellis's home, you would be sitting there during prohibition, and you would hear, 
little mess up in the attic, got a little bit warm, the yeast are too active, and that's what Jesus is saying here. New wine, new wineskins. You're thinking in moral categories of right and wrong, of good and bad, and I'm saying it's now time. The kingdom of God is now present. It is transforming the simple sugar of life into something even more joyful, even more powerful, something explosive. Can you tell this is not a Baptist church? Don't miss out because of the rules and the regulations of your religion. Now, that prompts Mark to think of another time Jesus fought the law. This time it was on the Sabbath. With Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through grain fields, picking heads of grain. That's the scandal. The Pharisees ask, why are they doing what's unlawful? That's the challenge. Have you ever noticed these guys are like hiding around every corner, right? It would be as if we're sitting here having church some Sunday morning and an NFL referee ran onto the stage and yelled, time. These Pharisees, their, their thinking shifted. They thought that if they kept the Sabbath perfectly two weeks in a row, well, then the Messiah would come and sit on King David's throne, right? And would return to them the majesty and the glory of what once had been. Which is why they run around yelling flag on the play, right? Which is why they're hiding behind stalks of grain to try to catch Jesus and his disciples doing the wrong thing. Because if we can't get it right, the Messiah will never come. If we can't get it right, then God won't grant us his glory. We've got to do better if we want the Davidic dynasty to return. We better follow the rules better. And so notice what Jesus does. I'm so excited to tell you the story. He says, have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need, we'll come back to that. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, we'll come back to that, David entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. It's only lawful for the priests to eat that. And he gave some to his companions. We'll come back to that. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. In other words, these things were supposed to point you toward me, not to make you question me in light of them. Which is a kind of drop-the-mic moment, isn't it? That they think they have to serve the Sabbath for God to do what they want, and Jesus says, no, the Sabbath was God's gift to you. It's a reminder of God's good creation, a recollection of God's redemption. It is his gift to us. Like one of my favorite authors, A.J. Swoboda, says, um, our God is so good, he invented the weekend. <laughs> really, remember Egypt? No weekend. God liberates him and goes, take a day off. But there's even more in telling the story. And I know it's a communion Sunday, and so sermons need to be shorter, so I'm going to go really quick, but this is too good for you to not know. 
Jesus tells the story about David and his companions, and in doing so, subverts their understanding of what they long for, of what they want, right? He retells the story quite creatively. Check it out later, uh, 1 Samuel, during halftime, but I just have to highlight a couple things. David did not have companions with him when he went into the temple to get the consecrated bread. He wanted as much as he could get, and so he said his companions were with him and that they were hungry as well, and he got all the bread and he left, but he had no companions with him. Check it out. I'm not making this up. And Abiathar was not the high priest when David came in to get the bread. He was tragically the only survivor in a battle that David brings on later in the story. And so Jesus says, listen, you are longing for this Davidic dynasty to return, but you're forgetting all that came with it. Jesus is trying to illustrate the difference between the old and the new, that old garment and the new garment, the old wineskins and the new wineskins, the Davidic dynasty and the kingdom of God. David fibbed to get that bread. David caused a lot of destruction. Jesus is saying, I created these fields that we're walking through. I come to bring healing and wholeness, not division and destruction. And then Mark tells us one more story. These don't all happen in the same day. He's trying to help us see something really important about how Jesus fights the law. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Here's the scandal. But watch what happens. This time, Jesus turns the tables, and Jesus makes the challenge. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Is it to do good or to do evil? Is it to save life or is it to kill? But they remained silent. They won't even answer. He looked around at them in anger. This is the strongest word we have for this emotion in all of the New Testament. It could also be translated as rage, as wrath, as indignation, even an agitation of the soul. And Jesus is deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Instead of amazed, they are apathetic. Instead of happy, they are hostile. Instead of joyful, they are jealous. And Jesus fought the law, and love won. Because Jesus won. Amen? Amen. If you're here in the sanctuary this morning or you're joining in online, and you don't consider yourself yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to notice that the God you may have heard about, even from well-meaning religious folks, the God you may have heard about who starts with good or bad, who starts with right or wrong, of who's in or who's out, the God who starts with either saint or sinner is not where Jesus starts his ministry. And that is not how Jesus decides who gets to receive his grace. We believe 
that Jesus tells us everything we need to know about the character of God. And Jesus will not allow the rules and the regulations of a man-made religion to restrict him from bringing healing and wholeness to that man with the shriveled hand. To bring freedom and even fullness to his disciples, they will not fast when it's time to feast, and the bottles are popping in the attic. One of the podcasts I sometimes listen to is called Radio Lab. Um, one recent episode told the story of two scientists who developed this brilliant artificial intelligence computer program that helped them discover and create new experimental medicines for the rarest of diseases. But over time, these two scientists realized that the very same technological advancement could also create the most potent and lethal chemical weapons known to man. They inadvertently opened the Pandora's box of WMDs. And so other scientists, hearing about how incredible their, their, uh, their technological advancement was, other scientists asked for access to it. And they said, no. And then the White House even said, well, well we'd like to see what you've come up with. And they said, no. Because they realized that in the wrong hands, all it took to transform the most brilliant, life-saving medicines into weapons of mass destruction was opening the source code of the algorithm and merely swapping a few zeros for ones and a few ones for zeros. And I had been dozing off on a Saturday afternoon into, an, into blissful nap time as I was listening to this episode, and then my eyes opened wide. And I realized, this is what happens with the religious folks of Jesus' day. A few of their zeros had been turned to ones, and the ones had been turned to zeros. Instead of the gifts of God being there for the people of God, they became too focused on their own performance. The Sabbath, what had been the source of, for sustenance of God's people, became the thing to be served. And the man who was worn out and weary and wounded would be cast aside because the rules and the regulations of religion, of what you can do and cannot do on the Sabbath, Saturday, in the synagogue. And God's people were so concerned about their performance and their prescriptions to get the Messiah to come that they missed it completely when he was right in their presence. Let's be honest about it. When David went into that temple, he did not have any companions with him. He fibbed to get as much bread as he could. But in those fields, Jesus did have companions with him. And as you come to this table this morning, this Sabbath day, you come as one of Jesus' companions. If we had to pretty ourselves up to stand before him, None of us would make it, certainly not me. But our performance is not what prompts our presence at this table, nor what prompts Jesus' presence in our lives. We come to this table because it's Jesus' table. And it seems that Jesus quite likes spending time with sinners because he knows that's the only way they'll become saints. It seems that Jesus quite likes spending time with the worn out and the weary and the wounded because he knows that's the only way they'll receive hope and healing and wholeness. And Jesus quite likes time spending people who are hurting and even people who are hungry 
because he will not require that they fast. No, he will invite them to feast at his table because the time has now come. The kingdom of God is now at hand. The bottles are popping in the attic. This is important. It's not as though Jesus just happened to get himself in a little bit of trouble here and there through his ministry. No. Jesus came to battle with the forces of evil and darkness. Jesus came to push back on those who would allow the zeros to be turned into ones. Even those who were wearing those black and white stripes and throwing yellow flags about what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath in the synagogue on Saturday. Jesus came back to push back even on those rules and regulations, even when they happen in church, so that we could join him at this table. And so, friends, Jesus says the same things to us this morning that he said to that man on that Saturday in that synagogue. He says to us, stand up in front of everyone and stretch out your hand. Receive the bread of life and the fruit of the vine whose bottle would pop if we didn't open it this morning because the kingdom has come. And it is a kingdom of amazement instead of apathy, a kingdom of happiness instead of hostility, a kingdom of joy instead of jealousy and judgment. May it be so for us this morning. And may we be that kind of church. A church not of the rules and regulations, the rites and rituals of religion, but a church that comes forward to this table because Jesus likes hanging out with people who don't quite have it all together yet. It, I think he prefers it. And so God, as we come forward to this table in a few moments, would you open our eyes and ears? Would you soften our hearts to the good news that you meet us here? No, more, you beckon us here. You draw us here. We could not come to this table on our own. Were it not for your grace, drawing us unto it. Father, would you help us to see it rightly, that there is a time for good and bad, for right and wrong, for yes and for no. And yet, would you also help us to hear the good news of your grace that meets us in our mess, that meets us where we're hungry, that meets us where we're hurting, that brings healing, that brings wholeness, and most of all brings hope. May we know that hope this morning. May it spring eternal, bringing joy to our hearts, leading our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.